0: Welcome, this talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org.
1: Okay, well, it's lovely to drop into your scene for a morning and um, practice with you. Uh, it's kind of a nice... Uh, uh, my the, the theme of the talk that I, I prepared is Opening to the Unknown. Um, and I was kind of enjoying how little forethought I thought about, like, what this place is going to look like or is going to show up, and I just came. Mm-hmm. And um, it's here, you know, we're here. It's lovely. Um, so, yeah, my the, the, the talk I prepared, it's, it, the theme is Opening to the Unknown. So how to best find that stance for ourselves as meditators um, where we can open up Freshly, you know, do our best to kind of set aside this energy of mind that is always trying to Find firm ground or orient itself somehow That prefers to be a little certain about things um, And instead to you know find find our way to be a little vulnerable uh, Open to the intimacy of our experience Um, It's kind of a central uh, demand of meditative practice we're coming to Meditation—it's a transformative process. You know, we're seeking some sort of shift. We're seeking to open to other perspectives, somehow to know ourselves, in a way um, that we have not yet before. To experience our world, you know, from from fresh perspectives, different perspectives, sometimes very radically different perspectives. So somehow, like setting down the like same old, same old way that we tend to operate, it's crucial, it's, it's key. Um, I'm going to weave into this talk just a little bit from an art perspective because there's something about um, the, what, what is required to be creative that there's a kind of overlap there for me in terms of finding this stance of, you know, willingness to kind of open to what happens versus just again and again do the same thing. Um, it's just like a warning, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so it's often said in different ways that the ideas that we hold, the preconceptions we have, the assumptions that we have, the past experiences that we've had, um, we bring them forward in, into how we meet our experience. And that kind of shapes what shows up for us, shapes what we receive, um, can also kind of limit and circumscribe what's possible. To see or to know, somehow. So there's that famous quote from Shunryo Suzuki. Uh, it's so famous, I forgot it. No, in the beginner's <laughs> mind, there are many possibilities, and in the expert mind, experts mind there are few. So just pointing to that fact, it's sort of the more we carry forward this energy of like, I know, I know what's going on, um, can close down. You know? so. Um, I'm going to read another quote. This one's from Pima Chodron. Uh, How do we work with this tendency to block and to freeze and to refuse to take another step towards the unknown? If our edge is like a huge stone wall with a door in it, how do we learn to open that door and step through it again and again so that life becomes a process of growing up, becoming more and more fearless and flexible? more and more able to play like a raven in the wind so she points to just that tendency we have to kind of lock up or have some kind of resistance maybe it even shows up as a kind of fear towards towards what what we haven't seen yet what has has yet to happen um and also emphasizes this need like again and again we're doing that in our practice we're finding for ourselves our own way to find that kind of openness, vulnerability. Um, That is a practice and it's a part of practice. And it's um, something that as we get stronger that way, it will serve us, you know, serve us in in terms of being able to receive what might show up that lies outside of our preconceptions. She also gives that really lovely image of the raven playing in the wind. You know, it, it describes a kind of willingness to be responsive you know is bringing together you know who who we may have been in the past, but also really able to freshly receive what shows up the current of the wind, you know that flight, the freedom there um, it's a it's a very um, I think it's a very nice kind of kind of poetic image um, Shinzhen yang uh, one time said something I'm I'm just quoting from memory. Um, So it'll be a paraphrase. But he said something like the normal human ordering principle is to seek comfort for the body, absence of pain in the body, and certainty for the mind. You know, it's just kind of the comfort zone of the mind. Um, So, uh, learning to... I don't know if it's like learning to be comfortable with not being certain. Maybe, you know, in in time it can go in that direction where it feels like a place we know. Um, But it's finding whatever ways are skillful for us to kind of keep setting ourselves in that place. Um, How does that energy of the mind kind of work uh, that wants to be certain? What are the kind of mechanics of it? You know, it's one part. Something shows up for us. I bring forward whatever past experiences are kind of relevant, use those to kind of categorize, box it up, fix things into, this reminds me of something that was good, something bad, and then I sort of feel like, all right, I know which way to navigate. Um, we bring forth not just our past experiences, but also you know what our conditioning. So what we receive from the culture, what we receive from our family of origin, even subtle things, you know, come forward as our conditioning. You know, what's what? How does my nervous system work? What what's it like to be born in this human body? And how how do I bring that forward? Um, they're all things that we can be curious about and work with in meditation. Um, and certainly, like this, need to find safety, need to find security, need to understand. Really useful in terms of our basic. Needs our basic safety, Um, making sure our basic physical needs are met, um, helping us to find emotional relationships and social contexts that have a basic level of sanity and um, healthiness somehow. Um, So you know we're not in the business of like eliminating any particular capacity of our mind um, that has a, a, a some useful quality. Instead, um, we're in the business of opening up these other possibilities, other perspectives, um, in addition, so that um, we can know ourselves in a transcendent way. You know, know ourselves in a way that mm, where we can kind of sense and taste the interconnectedness of things, and have those kinds of freedoms um, available. This um, like energy of mine that wants to lock everything down has its purpose but then it also starts to kind of move into other areas where it's really not about basic you know self-protection or something like that and it begins to kind of close down our ability to be intimate to be open to be you know like this raven in the wind um, to meditate well in a way you know to, to have that kind of openness where we're going to be able to receive different perspectives somehow. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, you can kind of sense the point where whatever our, our energies of mind, they become kind of like a millstone around our neck. Um, so we can think of, you know, looking towards releasing the limiting patterns of, of mind versus any particular type of energy, um, discovering what those are. Um, And finding ways to set them down What what is intimacy? What is intimacy? Intimacy is being in relationship um, In a way where there's some space, you know, there's some (laughs) space for the other to reveal themselves So whether that's another person or our experience there's some space and that requires us to stop, be still, be vulnerable, be naked, uh, that space, you know, comes from that. So um, there's a way, I was thinking about this when, when I've never had my bio read while I um, was <laughs> sitting there, and um, which, and it was lovely, you know, uh, but it was also weird, you know, like, it, it, yeah. there's a way that when I feel uncomfortable, let's say, and I find myself in a, in social situations where I don't know people like a party, you know, like my husband's office party or something like that. If I'm feeling a little uptight and contracted, I do very much rely on sharing, like, my bio data, basically. Like, I kind of rest in that, I kind of stay in that zone. I'm Susie, I live in Woodland Hills, I, you know, live with these people, I do this, I do that. Um, And it's a way of kind of just keeping things clean and (laughs) not intimate. If I feel really open, i um, really chill, really uh, you know centered, welcoming um, playful even and I meet new people it's like i'm I'm receptive on many dimensions you know there's the personal biographical level, but then there's others there's the energetic, there's a sense of play um, and there's a space for that person to re- reveal themselves to me um, in ways I could not imagine yeah something so that that kind of um, intimacy is possible. It has a quality of aliveness to it. Um, I read a book not too long ago that was written by Chogyang Trungpa. It wasn't written by him. It was a series of his talks that were transcribed. And they were on the subject of art and creativity. And I don't know if you're familiar with his teachings. He has a way of you know he uses a lot of hyperbole and it's kind of like schlag like this is how it is but he, he had a way of describing art that he felt was not living up to its dharmic potential so some you know it's a, it's a negative kind of art he described it as aggressive art that's the word that he used um so it wasn't bad art in the sense of like this was created by someone who didn't know what they were doing and they were unskilled or had no talent Instead, it was very much about the intention, the intention from which the art was made. So if it was made from a wish to show the world how talented I am, show the world how skilled an artist I am, show the world how profound my thoughts are, how deep I am, that was kind of like an act of aggression on the viewer. This is like a closed conversation. Um, No aliveness there, like no air getting in. If it was instead made from a place of more vulnerability, like questioning, uh, being willing as an artist to kind of step into a place of you know, looking at some aspect of this mysterious, fragile human condition, um, then that art would be more of an invitation, you know, more of a gift, uh, allow for some sort of dialogue between the work, the artist, the person who is seeing it, So, yeah, there may be some different ways to kind of point to this relationship between sense of aliveness, the ability for intimacy, and this, you know, this habit of mind that wants to kind of lock things down into what is easily categorized, Um, comparing, judging, um, something, uh, uh, it restricts a kind of dimensionality somehow when we get stuck on that just that one way of, of moving. Um, so, in terms of this idea of intimacy, again, it, it's not just about like our personal relationship level of intimacy. It is this ability to be intimate with our experience and in that, you know, to find for ourselves what is a stance that is, you know, has some courage, some willingness to kind of, you know, open, (laughs) open to, um, what we're, we're receiving in our practice. Um, so maybe for me, a couple things that are helpful for me on the cushion, um, one is to really do my best to like, keep my head down, you know, as I'm coming in to sit, to do my best to not get too big picture in any particular way, to really take the instructions as instructions, um, to see... You know, the practice period, okay, I'm going to sit for 45 minutes, like, how, w- w- bringing a wholehearted energy to just, like, see what happens, to play. Um, one way that we can think of what meditative instructions are, or particularly Buddhist meditative instructions, they're kind of like a recipe or a rule set for taking a different stance with our experience than whatever, you know, the most people's default is um the different ways we can take that stance it might be through moving into a kind of very single pointed concentration or instead focusing just on that swath of our experience that's incur- that's occurring in the present um heart practices whatever but it's it's somehow inviting us to kind of try something new pop into something new um So that attitude of play, curiosity, I think is important. The attitude, for for me, of, of not resisting the tendency to think too much about, like, how is my practice going overall as I'm beginning to sit on the cushion? What happened last time? Um, what happened a month ago? That kind of reflection about practice, I think, is really useful and skillful, but m- maybe, you know, like after the sit or, you know, as a, as a, as a separate kind of contemplation. Um, similar to that too i have found for myself that my mind tends to want to pick up practice extra instructions and then sort of start to spin like a kind of narrative about what they might mean for my life in a way that's kind of problematic um you know ideas of like what is it to release all attachment to let go of clinging um one thing to do it on the cushion with that wholehearted see what happens okay another thing for me to sort of start to like think about like all right I have these obligations in my life these people I'm responsible for um, how is that going to look if I really care about my practice does that mean that I need to find a way to (laughs) renounce you know there's just um, when we take those kinds of instructions on they're going to inform us in a different way you know they're going to inform us in an immediate way Um, they are going to bring a kind of release and insight and freedom that we sense and know in a very different way and it's not going to come from kind of whatever the larger arc that we're spinning is Um, so like that there's a beautiful zen text called faith and mind and one of the you know famous phrases that's often quoted in that is, is something like um The supreme way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Um, So, one thing to kind of like take me and my life and try to like figure out what that might be, and then another to just take that on as a practice instruction um, and see what happens there. So, um, you know, what would it mean to just take a stance of opening my awareness very broadly, um, receiving? Uh, Just taking a stance that there's space for whatever shows up, for example. You know, there's many different ways it could play out, but it's taking it on the level of instruction when I'm sitting for the short period of time for me is helpful with that part of my mind that just wants to, like, bring too many layers of ideas on top. Um, Let's see. Something else that I find is helpful in giving me a kind of permission to set down that part of my mind that uh, wants to evaluate and judge and, and be sure is very much practicing in community. Um, how I envision the Dharma for me is sort of one thing I can kind of spin out about, but how I just receive it in other people that I know, that I sit with over time, um, it's different. It's more I just I just see, ah yes. like. This is good. <laughs> you know, this is good. How this um, plays out over time, over years, I can just kind of intuit it. So when we have these ways of intuiting a value that is different than, you know, that's different than me like saying like, oh, they must be practicing the right way. I'm practicing the wrong way. You know, it's tuning into that part that just says, yes, this is good. That's it. Um, for me, working with teachers um, directly really supported that, too. Supported my uh, ability to kind of set down my fears and conflicts and you know where I was hanging myself up in terms of You know my own practice because I could just kind of trust how Decades of practice looked on someone else. i just gonna trust that. Um, another way for some people is very important to kind of tune into this way of trusting these other ways of navigating uh, is when the intimations of beauty and sacredness show up for us around practice. Um, they are again something that we kind of, we receive um, in a way that is not very easy to box up, not easy to quantify somehow. Um, I started practicing at uh, Deer Park Monastery is in North County, San Diego. This is a Thich Nhat Han Monastery, um, and I came there because I had started reading about meditation, and I was really clear that the kind of anxious, worrying, frantic mind I had would really benefit from this kind of practice if I could figure out how to do it. Um, so I had a, and one had a kind of clear practical intention for myself, and then I showed up to that community, that space, and I was just struck by, you know, a sense of sacredness, a sense of artfulness in the forms and the chants, and this, again, this experience and community, um, and that ended up being, in a way, very sustaining for me. I could just kind of trust that. Um, they chant the, uh, the Heart Sutra there as they chant in all, in all Zen practice centers, um, you may if you've been practicing that at all, you're probably quite familiar with that with that text. Um, I first was hearing it without really knowing anything at all about Buddhism and you know, it seemed very obscure, but there was still something in it that kind of resonated and I could kind of trust, you know, in the the there's a mantra at the end There's gate gate para gate parasam gate bodhisvaha translated something like gone 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 beyond you know far beyond to the other shore awakening and I, I would not have been able to tell you what the shore was or what anything about it but there was just something in that image of movement into an, some unknown shore and that was I kind of knew okay something there so sensing that way um, you know the way we receive silence it, um, we practice together in silence, we just did it for half an hour, it was really, um, it's, it is, it's always quite intimate to sit with, you know, I don't know, I know Wendy, but not really the rest of you, but th- there's that opening. Um, there's certainly practical reasons why we come together and practice in silence, like we have to stop, you know, talking and uh, doing all of that, and we can support each other in our common intention when we're silent together. And then we can see what's going on inside ourselves. And so all of that is true, but I would say there's something else that, um, you know, sometimes we just kind of sense and know this kind of, I don't know, awe or it's very hard to describe because we're getting, I'm, you know, I'm trying to describe things that aren't easy to box up and compare. Um, <coughs> the The... The Brahma-viharas, those, you know, the, the loving kindness, mudita, sympathetic sympathetic joy, joy for other people, um, compassion, equanimity, those are sometimes called, you know, the four immeasurables. You know, they defy this kind of comparison, and they're known in another way. They're boundless, something like that. So, um, for me, part, part of... Uh, Knowing it's okay to just like drop it and set it down is also just to reconnect to the ways in my own life, whatever they are. They may be different for you than th- the various things I rattled off now, but where there's just a kind of knowing that um, cannot be quantified somehow. Um, I don't know if I have that quote. It's a quote by E.E. E. Cummings, um, who is a poet, not a Zen master. Um, I don't think I stuck it on here. Um but it's something like um whatever uh can be measured is not alive. Uh, something like that. And what whatever um is not alive cannot be art. You know, he's talking about art, but it's just something about that relationship between um what we can box up and quantify and this aliveness. And I assumed like the art was his Dharma, you know, so it can kind of extend that way, immeasurable. Um, Let's see, maybe one last thing I'll share um, in terms of something else that can be a way to open more, or maybe release a kind of limitation, is to contemplate or think about what we want from practice, what practice means to us. In, in, in um, what we're seeking from it in a way, and might there be anything limiting about that um, limit what can show up for us in our practice uh, that's a big topic that I'm, I'm really quite interested in, how these kinds of conceptual frameworks can close off possibilities, or how playing with them can open up possibilities, um, so maybe just for, for, for the few minutes we have left, I'll just, I'll just share about a particular kind of thread of that in my own practice, and maybe that will be um, enough. Uh, my teacher, Rob um I listened to a series of his talks, and this was before he was my teacher, and they really opened up a lot for me. And they were on this theme of um, how does our, the way we conceive of practice and what it is, how can it close us down possibly um and long long talks lots of different ideas but at the end he dropped in this particular idea what if we conceive of the dharma as art Um, not the art of simplicity or the art of practice or the art of renunciation just art like what might that shift possibly so as as, as you guys know, I have this you know, history of being an artist, so maybe for me it was particularly somehow kind of opened things up. Um, but one thing that came up really clearly was it kind of showed me wh- what I, how I was relating to the Dharma um, by showing another possibility. So I could see in how I related to art, I was really comfortable with like openness, mystery, being surprised, uh, in a way not really making demands on it. But in how I related to my meditation practice, it was very much kind of like this quid pro quo relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it going to do for me? How will it fix me? And in particular, how will it like fix this list of things that I've already decided mm-hmm. need to be fixed? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those demands circumscribed what could show up. Because I was looking for something, looking for something specific, um, and that thinking about art, you know, I just I wouldn't relate to art that way. It was so important to me, so meaningful, but it wasn't about that. What nourished me, you know, came from beyond somehow. What I could conceive It was fine with it coming from the mystery. Um, so there's that idea of the kind of value I was looking for. Um, that it was a value that I was, had pre-established. Um, you, know, I mean, you, can, you can put a value on art. You can price a painting. There's an art market. You can evaluate it in terms of um, different laws of aesthetics and things like that. But that's not what is meaningful to most people. There's, instead, it's something that touches us from beyond whatever we already know. So, opening that up for me in terms of how I relate to Dharma, like that, that shifted something, um, made something possible. Made things possible that I, you know, I didn't know about yet. It was very important for me. Um, Something else in that uh, relationship to art, thinking about my relationship to Dharma that was important to me, was this idea of of the subjective experience and how to value that. I had no issue in terms of thinking about art, like whether or not um, everyone had to experience the same piece of music or poetry the same way. It's like if somebody, if that opened someone's heart or unlocked some sense of meaning for someone, some particular song, book, whatever, great. I was just happy for them. It was like there was no need to kind of compare in that way or, or value or validate in that way. Um, our culture places a lot of emphasis on what can be proven, um, like you know, in terms of what can be proven by science, for example. Um, that's impacted the way that we look at practice, I look at meditation. That's just one example of a kind of framework that we might hold up to, you know, what our practice is, what meditation <clears throat> is. Um, a lot of good has come from that, in that it's made meditation more available to people. You know, there's been clinical studies that prove that certain techniques are helpful for certain ailments or, um, you know, they do brain scans and they show like, oh, in long-term meditators, this is how the brain has changed. Um, In its its way, it's very inspiring and it's, um, I think, allowed different swaths of people to enter into practice than might otherwise. Um, But there's also, you know, there can be a kind of shadow side about that, um, kind of limiting to the provable. As a way we relate to practice, um, there's a whole range of what is available in practice that is not is not provable, provable. It's very subjective. Yet, so again, like art, so can be so meaningful. Like um, the mystical side of any re- spiritual tradition, religious tradition. You know, they were the meditators. You know, they were the Um, the mystics, whether the, you know, Sufi mystics, Christian mystics, um, whatever the tradition, it's their direct experience of God or how they knew it. That was the primary value, you know, versus whatever the dogma of the institutionalized religion was. So there's something for me too, in opening that, just that side uh, these are just a couple examples, you know the what what the value I'm seeking is, um, how I value the subjective. There's many other ways that we box our practice in. Um, but uh, just, yeah, just sharing those few. Um, so I think that's what I have to share today. Um, so hopefully it was helpful. Um, and yeah, I guess now, we have time to share for people to um you can ask questions you can <laughs> yeah um you can also share what's going on in your practice what happened for you in this sit? um reflections whatever but have a hand already
2: mm. you teach
1: art no no i don't i've never taught art okay i wasn't
2: mm-hmm. sure if you that you
1: I do have people that I work with in the context of meditation who are artists and who, who are really interested in that area yeah but but in terms of like formally teaching art or technique yeah okay. yeah no I haven't I'm a trained artist um which is clearly so important from my talk no but uh, <laughs> I studied art but but I moved into being more interested in kind of the I would say the spiritual side of exploring the creative process and and did, um, for a few years, I did a lot of study with a woman who taught a kind of, um, they called it process painting. Her name was Michelle Cassou. Some people are familiar with with her work, Um, where she teaches um, how you can engage in the process of painting and really open to as much kind of freedom as possible, setting aside as much as possible our expertise, and um, in it, in that, it becomes a kind of spiritual practice. So yeah, that was a long way to answer the question. Is it?
2: Yeah, I was just curious about how you, if you're bringing this into your meditation teaching, how you bring, how you encourage people to stay in a meditative state, not when they're creating art. If you do anything like that, you have any techniques that you um, do that, as opposed to just being in the flow, but in, in meditation.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, <clears throat> I have done um, different, like workshops and like day-long retreats, kind of on the subject. Um, and sometimes people will teach, um, like a, a kind of, you know, like a mindful brush painting or a mindful you know it's like a, it's a, it's an actual technique and then you know there's done as a kind of mindfulness practice and that actually hasn't been that interesting to me in a way it's been more like how can the meditative practice um set one up to to open most skillfully if that makes sense to to, to find that place because like are you an artist or you, you enjoy a creative practice of some kind. Yeah, That's the, you have that connection. You have that way of, of, of being and knowing. Um, when it's on, like, you know, when it's just happening and you are being surprised and the, the balance between, like, what you're bringing and what you're able to receive happens. Like, for me, that's... I don't really want anything else. I don't want to put any other kind of framework on top of it. Um, so... Finding different ways for a meditative practice to support that kind of fearlessness in a way, or that, that finding that position. That, that's been more the, the approach that I've had in exploring it. And also recognizing in one's meditative practice, um, sort of like how to include the energies that maybe we think of as only belonging to art. And allowing those to come in and support the deepening of the meditative practice, that's another area that I'm kind of interested in. You know, desire, um, narrative, myth, um, you know—seeing, finding ways for those to kind of come in and, and empower the practice. And interesting to me. It's one of the reasons the teacher that I have now, he, he opened up a lot of possibilities um, that for me kind of resonated in those ways of putting together the two pieces of, you know, like I, I, the mindfulness meditator and the artist. Like for a long time, I could not put those pieces together. You know, one is about dispassion and cooling and um, kind of simplifying in a way. And then the artist side is, is all about getting caught on fire, <laughs> you know, being fascinated, wanting to communicate, be in relationship so all of that. But yeah, that's really been part of my journey is finding that.
0: I was just going to share that I feel that in my practice, the sort of way that I get to don't know mind is like inching there slowly, slowly by being better able to recognize a belief when it comes up. And seeing it for what it is and letting it not take hold or, or grip me and then that leaves me to be more open mm-hmm. uh, but then it's if that's sort of how it happens is you know uh, that's how i get more towards being ready for just the whatever the unknown to come mm-hmm. is it, by clearing the space of the beliefs by seeing them as they come and going, no. <laughs> um, but they, they still they still get me a lot. <laughs> I still see them. But then on the cushion is sort of like the place to practice seeing everything that comes up, whether it's a body sensation or a feeling or a thought or anything. And then the way to be open to the unknown is when a belief is coming and seeing it as a belief and then saying, Wearing that and linously. That's what it feels like. That's yeah. what I was
1: feeling when you know, as you were talking. That's oh, beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing your your process with that. Okay. Well, Thanks for your talk. So <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, and that's really, you know, the the we're gonna find our own way. Yeah, we're gonna find our own way. So if, it's, yeah, if other people want to share what that is for them, I think it's, it's always kind of can unlock mm-hmm. uh, our own process when we hear the, the paths that other people have found or weigh into that possibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you, very good talk. Um, you know, you spoke a little about, uh, if I
2: go this path, I'll feel better. A little bit like that, and I know that's what began my path, also. But the way I, I think I see it a little different um, meditate yes, magical, not like it's all magic, but there's that quality, and then life not so magical. Um, <laughs> uh, so, help that helped me see this. So
1: that's limited for me. Mm-hmm. So I can work at that. Thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, thank you
3: for sharing. Thank you for your talk. You're welcome. My practice is uh, breath meditation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very what she said back there. Mm -hmm. In my meditation, I can in the breath. When I deviate from the breath, that's when you see the suffering. As as I personally, the way I've been trained is when I deviate from the breath. The question is why. And there's your suffering there. The four Noble Truths all have a function. Each one of the Noble Truths has a duty to be done. Mm -hmm. And the first one is to identify that stress. And she said it great back there. (laughs) If you're only focused on the breath, as soon as you deviate from it, you can look at that as a fabrication and ask yourself, what is that? And it's usually stressful in some way. It's unnecessary. So just go back to the breath. So the second duty is you have to identify the first one, and then, well, how did you cause that? Well, I deviated from the breath. It's easy to go back to the breath. I can see that right away. Uh, for the cessation of my suffering, I can just go back to it, and it works. The beauty of the breath is just there. Just go back to it and put down all that discursive thinking that you're talking about. And then the fourth one is the path, understanding the mobile path. And it works. Buddha was clear about that. I haven't heard Buddha's name today. I've heard a whole lot of Zen names. (laughs) But I haven't heard Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. I lived at Deer Park for like a year. I've lived at Green Gulch Farm for a year. And I've lived at Meta Forest. So whether it's Vietnamese Zen, Soto Zen, Tibetan, Theravodan. There's a great book called Focused and Fearless. have you read that one? Yeah. I think that's the answer, because she writes it so well.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And you can muster up that fearlessness and just be like a samurai. Like, like you're almost ready to die on any given day. If you understand the healfulness of that moment, you're like, you know, I've let everything go. I'm effluent free.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: When I live at the monastery and I follow the schedule that I'm supposed to follow, that's what's presented to me. That's the reality, like, do these things for us, please. So I do those things, I live in a tent, but I'm asked to come out of my tent to help the monastery, to feed the monks, and to do those things, but for me, it's like if I didn't have to go out of my tent, maybe I wouldn't. And so what I'm saying is, is I, fo- I only follow the schedule, like I don't wanna have effluence, I just wanna do what's presented to me for the, for the reality. And when someone's like, here's the schedule for you to follow, I'm like, you know what? Some people like, it's tight and it kind of sucks. But I'm not in there at all. I am not in there. It's just what they're asking. And if I just follow that body, speech, and mind, what, there's no person left. There's no aggregate. There's no... Think about it. There's nothing left. You don't have your aggregates. You're kind of not there. You're pretty free because you're just doing what you're told. Please cook that food. Please sweep that. Could you please feed those venerable? And when you do that, you're pretty darn free, and it's great. Mm-hmm. Something to think about. Mm-hmm. So Thank you.
1: Breath, breath, breath. Mm-hmm.
4: Thank you. Um, what he was saying made me... I had this question in my mind, because when I read your, um, your bio on the, the newsletter... Well, she's going to talk about work-life balance. That's something that's interesting to me. But she didn't really. He mostly talked about art, and it was lovely. And I definitely have experienced that feeling of flow and doing art. Um, and he's talking about um, just focus on the breath, but you can't do that when you are living life. You know, when you have all these responsibilities and stuff. So I just wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So to talk about the balance, um between or just whatever comes
4: that's what I understood um that you were gonna talk about. Okay, yeah (laughs) no no uh,
1: the the bio yeah. So what I share today would just be, you know, what I a particular topic that I (laughs) picked for the day. Um so um yeah there's so so many different possible shadings on what that balance can mean. Um, maybe to tie in a little bit uh, about what's been shared today and what, um, you know, comes up for me in the talk. Um, you know, we have to make a choice uh, or a choice that has already been made by the time we find practice in terms of how we're going to relate to the balance. You know, uh, someone comes across the Dharma when they're very young and they decide that they want to live a monastic life and that is a possibility, then that's a possibility. You know, for some of us, either through preference or through circumstance, you know, you have the kids already. You have the ailing parents who need your care. Certain decisions that you have, you know, $80,000 of college debt. You know, you. know, Choices have been made. And so um it maybe does become a different. I mean, I I I definitely um the point that I don't didn't mention the Buddha, like I, you know, I I hear that. I hear what, what that can mean, and 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 really um so much of what has been made possible in my practice came from the the genius of the Buddha, the genius of his approach. Um, and yet, I am also working with those kinds of instructions which really were directed at a monastic community um, with, with the, the emphasis of, um, you know, the best thing would be to enroll and to find that balance. Um, and so for me, part of it has been a kind of willingness to try things that are a little off uh, uh, off the map and also to look at the um range of the historical range of what um where the teachings went and changed so um what they teach at Metaforest monastery is very much you know pali canon caravadan you know and and i think that um Bhikkhu is a brilliant um He's a meditation master, and you can tell in what he communicates. So, um, however, trying to fit certain aspects of myself into certain things I understand about how he teaches didn't quite work for me. So, again, it's this kind of, for me, this possibility for the the, the subjective to kind of move uh, uh, that's been important, and it 's something that i that that was helpful for me and i 'm completely fine with people disagreeing with that or that you know that's not making sense or that um, i'm just all I can do is share you know from here what what my path is, my perspective, and if something is beneficial, then hopefully um, working with desire in a different way, um, working with um, relating to my life in a way that, that in, included a lot of dimensions that w- I would say come from more of a Vajrayana perspective or a Tantric Buddhist perspective. Um, that's been important for me in sort of finding my way as a, as a, like a householder. Um, so it becomes like what, it, what different ways are possible to hold desire, um, to work with desire. Is there, for me I would say, it as opposed to like a renunciation of desire, it's like when I'm with my child you know, it would be, if he wasn't really clear how I cared about him in a very specific way in terms of who he was and who I was, it would be wrong, you know, for me. It would feel, um, there has to be a certain, that one dimension of connection. It can't be a like, you know, I'm just gonna, like, it doesn't matter what happens with you, kid. Like, that's part of parenting and mothering. And so that kind of confuses this whole, Um, how we might look at at the teachings from the Pali Canon, I think. So for me, it's, um, you know, can I expand the ways that I hold what it means to love in different ways? Can I open these different perspectives? You know, that for me has been really important. Um, mm, Yeah. Also, being able to be okay with things being like kind of half-assed, you know, like, at times they are, you know, at times I'm not doing everything well. I'm not attending to my practice um, as I could be, um, but, you know, doing my best to uh, find ways to practice deeply in the, in the, in the midst you know, like simple things too. Like one thing I know, uh, you know, I, pr- I've learned to meditate with my eyes open. I don't know if that makes any, you know, but ways that we can find our way into concentrated states and, and practice when we're kind of on the go, whatever. So there's like the nitty gritty. I don't know. I just like threw out some stuff for you. Yeah. I don't know if that was, I think
4: that's kind of where I'm trying to, I'm, cause I'm, you know, uh, well, I'm a teacher, so I'm in my summer break and I'm a Devo- devoting myself more fully to practice mm-hmm. and um you know like okay what what's it like to you know try to bring practice in throughout the day when I'm not sitting mm-hmm. just bring it oh I'm being aware right now you yeah know, just trying to bring it in but then once s- school starts which hit the ground running it's just like you know yeah it's it's a struggle to to keep mindfulness so yeah but thank
1: you yeah I,
4: I love what you said about art <laughs> yeah, that's <it> great
3: <laughs> When I leave the monastery for me I Constantly have to remind myself could I've done that behavior better could I just have been better somehow So I don't know if that's helpful as a teacher or See, anybody.
4: I'm sorry. No, I'm not sure what you mean.
3: Okay. So whatever you do Could you have done that better? Period. Just, I keep it real simple
5: well, we so whatever to that may be. We have stopped stop now. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you again, Susie, for coming. It was lovely to have you. And um, I hope you'll come back. We'll, we'll set another date for you. And um, so I want to do a few announcements, and then we'll close with a meta practice. Um I understand. We have a great sit at Tuesday and Thursday mornings yes. at 6 a.m. Awesome. Right here. Um, right here. So uh, come on in and get your early morning groove on.
1: Uh, I have to say, I'm not an early morning person, and getting up that early is like, but I love it. I really, it's a wonderful way to start the day.
5: And when I get home, I'm just at 7 15. What? Got a, I'm got i not even up usually by that time, so <laughs> wonderful way to start the day ahead of you, so
1: I encourage you. Beautiful,
5: yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, we have a Buddhist book study that is going on, and on Saturdays at the Montecito Center, and Angela told me to say it is not in Montecito it is in Seal Beach. <laughs> she yeah. thinks, people think it's in Montecito. Uh, and you could just come for the book study at 11 or you could come to the sit at 10 and walk and sit with us. Um, we're reading Dhamma Everywhere by Say- Sayadaw Utejania and people are going deep. It's a deep dive. So uh, that will be this Saturday. And it's going to be the second Saturday of the month, and we'll probably vote to see if we want to do it two Saturdays or one. We're still in process, but you're welcome to come to that. Um,
1: Yes? Yeah, so for the book study, not having come, Mm -hmm. would it be in the newsletter at what point you're at in the study? Well,
5: you know, the book is a kind of book where you can pick up any page. And practice is new. It's written like that. It's not where you have to read from chapter one to, you know, the first page to the last. It's filled with practice material. So um you don't have to read the book. You can just come and read a page or two, and it's all practice-related. Having said that, the book is online for free, and you can download it um, and read on your own. But it's a real aid for deepening practice, real aid for deepening
2: Yes? Two things, um, Mm I want to pass these out. I have some free Tai Chi classes coming up this week through the city um, at Alamitos Beach. There's a big concert happening next weekend called um, Sun Soap um, Festival. And they funded for Mm -hmm. people to go out and do activities. So Alamitos Beach, 10 to 11, every day this week. And also, I've talked with Reka and um, Jocelyn about doing some classes here now. So I just want to let you know, I'm looking for people who might be interested in doing a gratitude workshop, um, which is going to be built around <coughs> um, CUs. Um, I'm working with a, a therapist and, and looking for other therapists or other people who could participate and give us some notes. So I just wanted to put that out there. We have some dates picked out, and I have a time when... I mean, if anybody wants to talk to me afterwards, I have different dates when it could happen.
5: All right. And I'm doing a once-a-month support group that's secular on um, mindful self-compassion and mindful-based cognitive therapy and resilience skills that's going to meet once a month on a Sunday afternoon early evening and if you're interested in that come see me and then um, we're having a very uh, beginning of a fund drive for a rent reserve and this is Sue's idea we have a jar or a glass back there for loose change so we'll have a loose change jar and our goal is to have for this a three-month rent reserve over the time probably by the time we get to the end of the year and going into the new year so um see if there's Mm -hmm. anything that i left out and uh yeah oh and we have this wonderful two weeks yeah two weeks uh backyard barbecue at my house everyone mm -hmm. welcome
0: uh it's in the newsletter Mm -hmm. don't call me (laughs)
5: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and,
0: and
4: please sign up for the newsletter.
5: If you're not on the newsletter, sign up for There's a sign-in sheet right, over there right, for the right. newsletter. Yeah. And then no, yeah, I like uh, that Mark? Yeah. There'll be a sunset meditation in... Summer sunset meditation in August. We try to do one every year, so stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're going to close. Oh, and please be generous with your Donna. Susie came all the way from... Thousand Oaks. Wow. Hills. Woodland Hills. Same house. difference when, when you're <laughs> in Long Beach. So think about that at the of jar, the donation mm-hmm. jar. Do you want to close us out with meta? Yeah. Sure. Awesome.
1: Okay. Um, um. So we'll just offer uh, the meta phrases for ourselves and for those we're here with, and then to all beings. Do you guys usually do it silently, or you speak mm-hmm. um, them?
5: Either one.
1: Either one, whichever you, you like. is um, good, anyway you slice it, but. Um, <laughs> so we can just do it then silently, I'll just say the phrases, and then you can say them as you like. May I be happy. May I be safe from outer and inner harm. May I be free. May you be safe from outer and inner harm. May you be free. happy. May all beings be safe from outer and inner harm. May all beings be free. A retreat at, at Long Beach right. they just emailed us <laughs> I not want to go on that. <laughs> Probably not, but Are they yeah they're just they did it last year they go into okay. Jokai okay. Zen center. I would love to do that. Yeah. Too, too little time in
5: the world.
1: I know. Oh, <laughs> um, really
5: well. yeah